Rabbi Eliyahu Fink is in our studio. I'll allow him through the purpose, through the, uh, through this conversation, I should say. I'll allow him to, uh, introduce himself and, um, and tell us a little bit about himself. Don't want to give you any titles and associations yet till you hear the whole story. Rabbi Eliyahu Fink is from the west coast of this country. He has a, a very popular blog. You can check out finkorswim.com. We're also proud to announce that during the 5775 NSN season, he'll be a member of our rotating hosts of a stunt show hosts, as we like to call them, that airs on Thursday afternoon on this um, network. Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, welcome to JM in the AM. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Is the entire West Coast up early this morning, knowing that you're here visiting us today? I'm fairly certain they are not. <laughs> Things don't work like that on the West Coast, huh? Luckily, there's an app. Yes, I know. There's an app for that. And they'll be able to hear it later on, uh, this conversation. So you originally, I assume, are from the East Coast. and In fact, you mentioned that you used to listen to JMNAM as a youngster. That's true. Growing up, uh, driving to Ashar in the mornings when I was in elementary school, uh, JMNAM was our soundtrack. Well, I appreciate that. When did you head out west? I've been in Los Angeles for 10 out of the last 11 years. And why? Why would a nice Jewish boy from the East Coast go to California? I went to do a job, and I thought I was coming back very quickly. When I went for my interview for this first job, it was a campus outreach job at USC, and I was so certain that I was not taking this job, I actually asked Ashila if I was allowed to take the free trip because I knew that it was just a free trip and there was no chance that I was going to be living there. And my rabbi said, do they know that you're not, you're not planning on coming? And I said, of course. He told them. I said, of course. He said, they want you to come anyway? I said, I guess so. So we went and uh, we were hooked pretty quick. And that was the USC campus. That's correct. A very well-known college here in this country. So you could tell us from your experiences in the front line just how tough things are on the college campuses for Jewish kids. Absolutely. It was a, re- a really incredible experience to be there. Um, just a, a, a life that I had no idea existed growing up in the from community right. of people that are passionately Jewish or passionately not into their Judaism with passion and um, just the way that people are interested in finding out more and learning about a world that they also didn't know really existed. And that campus position was under, I assume, some type of organizational umbrella, right? Someone sent you out there. <laughs> exactly. There's an organization in Southern California called Ashrenu, or JAM, oh, uh, yeah. Jewish Awareness Movement, Bracha Zerat, a very well-known right. Kirov and Rabbi Klatsko, kind of broke his teeth in that uh, Kirov world. Right. Um, so She's the lady that everyone talks about, right? That's, that's the one. <laughs> Bracha, who you mentioned, right? Exactly. Everyone's always talking about this Kirov lady, so she's the one. She's the one. In <laughs> fact, she started out with, um, you know, knocking on doors at Hebrew University in, uh, in, in Jerusalem before they moved to, before they moved to the United States. I mean, she was on the front lines of Kirov in the 70s, the early 80s, doing it all by herself. When did you start your association with the Pacific Jewish Center? This will be the end of my sixth year. What type of synagogue is it? It is the type of synagogue that defies definition, which is the exact kind of the synagogue that I am happy to be a part of. Um, in many, How would we categorize it? <laughs> um, it makes what category in the Jewish newspapers around the country? Right. How is it identified? <laughs> so it, it became famous in the uh, late 70s, 80s, because Rabbi Daniel Lapin, famous rabbi, mm, sure. um, created a movement in that shul. And that, that was a huge cure of movement where there were... About, I think he told me 111 weddings of couples that were both from the shul at the same time in the wow. 80s. I mean, it's a huge number, and all those people were from 
Um, and that's really where the community got built. Um, so there was this firm community of people that had lived in Venice or lived in Santa Monica and become part of this shul. And then through the years, many of them had become alumni. They'd moved on. They've gone all over the world. Any firm community in the world has somebody that was part of that community at some right. point. And through the last couple decades, there's been a group of people that have lived there, that have stayed there, plus all the other people that are there because they've come to move to that community, plus, you know, it's Venice. I don't know if you, what you know about Venice. But yeah. I what hear- you've heard, it's way, way different. It's way more than that. You Whatever know, it was. a friend of mine lived in Los Angeles for a while, and we were discussing what Jewish life is out there on the West Coast in general. And this may be way too general a term, but... It seems like um, all that we here in the East and other parts of the U.S. think about the West Coast in terms of their priorities when it comes to beauty and when it comes to, uh, you know, looking and acting a certain way is in fact true. Would you say that the values out there do lack something compared to other areas of the country? I wouldn't say it's fair to say lack because I think there are different values on both sides. In other words, there are different values between the East Coast and the West Coast. And putting it into almost positive terms, I would say that there is a superficiality that exists there that right. is not present as much in New York. In New York, Hollywood-like. Right. And the way it actually manifests itself sometimes is kind of interesting. So in New York, you know, people are less friendly when you see them on the street. They don't smile. Allegedly. It's no, it's true. I'm from here. Can't fool me. But, you know, the people, they're not outwardly friendly. Right. But neighborhoods exist where people are really close to each other. Correct. And in Los Angeles, people are very friendly. You see people on the street, they're smiling, they're high, they're whatever, but there's very little beyond that. There's very little community that grows deeper than that. So if we observe the Orthodox communities, I don't know, take those here or, you know, compared to the ones that you're referring to out there, regular modern Orthodox communities, we would notice that difference. We would see that it doesn't have the tightness, the closeness, the very close association that we're used to over here. I wouldn't say it's as obvious when it comes to the from communities because we have our own kind of internal connections. Right. The Jewish geography exists no matter where you're from. Right. But when you're talking about the rest of the rest of the community, that is a stereotype that exists there. But there are also things there that are much better, I think, or much easier or much Besides more. Besides the weather. Yeah, the weather. But it actually contributes. You know, Right, um, that's true. I've always said when I was working at co- in college campus that the difference between working at USC and college campuses that had cold weather right. was that in the winter, people when school mostly is during the time of the year where it's, it's colder. And you, you can just imagine the wind is howling, the snow is coming down, the rain is falling, yep. and people are clutching their coats and tightly closing their their That's their, their priority. Right. To stay warm. Right. But when you outwardly manifest this this feeling of closedness to to stay closed, then you become more close to new ideas. Whereas right. if in, in and everybody knows this in Southern California, anything goes. People right. are more open, and it kind of manifests itself in the way that they are not having to tightly keep themselves warm. I was in L.A. for a wedding in February, and you know what kind of winter we had here. So I'm there for one day and woke up really early in the morning to make the flight back. And I see people jogging on the street and with their morning coffee at 5.30 a.m., and I'm saying to myself, it's all about the weather. It's all about the weather. It's all about that type of atmosphere. Right. And it's not just the weather. It actually makes a huge difference in lifestyle. People are outside. People are right. able to feel comfortable. People go for walks every day. It's just a very different vibe when you have people that are able to enjoy. I, I think it's beautiful because you get to enjoy a God's world. Right. And it's in, it's, in, it's in a beautiful way physically and also because of the emotional differences. Great. Excuse the diversion, but that's why so many great athletes in this country, such a large percentage, come from California. They have time to play ball 12 months out of the year constantly. So That's true, but other, on the other hand, there are also a lot of times are the flops because they haven't had to break their teeth or get through the grit of having to kind of survive a winter. 
Now, this is a good topic for the stud show. <laughs> I must, we must do this at one time. Absolutely. Compare absolutely. the background of those who are breaking their, their, who are breaking their bones in, uh, in bone chilling weather and those who have it really easy when it comes to tossing around the football. Uh, Rabbi Aliao Fink is here, finkerswim.com. So you've become well known for a whole bunch of stuff, including the fact that you give a supersonic speed dafyomi shear. That's not true or it is true? Well, I did the Dafyomi for over a year. Oh. And, um, it was, I loved it. It was very successful and I really enjoyed it. I, I loved having that niche of doing it in a, in a, in a quick and fast way that maybe it was hard to find another class, especially online, that would be able to give that, um, to people. And then this year I had a shift in scheduling and priorities. It was unable to, to put the time and effort that it was necessary for. Do you the hear class. from people complaining that it's not available right now? It's, it's not as much complaints as it's guilt trips. <laughs> <laughs> they but, watch you back. Yeah, and I, I do really, uh, there is not, there's not, there's probably not a day go by where, because, you know, it's impossible to avoid a reference to the Duffy. I mean, everywhere you go, people right. are writing, you know, or talking about it, and I'm always thinking to myself, I should, I should really be doing that again. So it's in my plans to kind of, uh, resurrect that, and hopefully I'll be able to do it soon. Uh, you get, you actually were part, and, and one of the people who introduced me to Rabbi Elio Fink before we actually met in person was Matis Weingast. You actually did one of the Siyumim for him during his Sunday show. You had to get up really in the morning, early in the morning to do that, uh, from the California, from out in California, but, uh, I remember that I was part of that program. Rabbi Elio Fink is here. So the blog, I would assume, is what has made you most popular out there. This is what everyone, uh, thirsts for, to read what you have written. Well, first, popular is a strange word. Popular makes it sound like everybody likes it. That's true. So there's, uh, it's there's, brought you fame. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't know what the opposite of that would be, but there's definitely a lot well, of in- pe- infamy would be the opposite. But I think in your case, we could say fame, though. Well, <laughs> it goes, it goes, it really does go both directions. For me, it was not, it was never about that. It kind of happened all by accident. It's a whole story in of itself how that all happened. Um, and, and the truth is, the blog, which is the under the URL, thinkorswim.com, right. has become a very specific niche of my overall internet presence. So there's one part of it which is represented by what I do on the blog, and then there's other stuff that gets represented by what I do writing for other publications or what I do on the social media sites like Facebook and Twitter or whatever. So what's the goal of all these? Tell us what the goal of your Facebook presence is and what the goal of the blog is. There are many goals, but the overall goal is kind of to try and merge and be connected to what I try to do in my shul. You asked earlier what my shul is right. like, and we never really did answer that question. I got sidetracked with the uh, with the football references. <laughs> but my personal goal and what I use the shul to do and what it is as a, as a, as a resource is a place that provides positive Jewish experiences to the maximum number of people. And the goal of that is, it sounds easy, but it's actually pretty hard. Most places, most religious institutions, most people, most most thinkers, most groups are very narrow. And it's hard for people to kind of enjoy or be able to experience things that are outside what they're used to. And the shul has this amazing ability to transcend all that. People from all, and I mean this without exaggeration, every single kind of Jew has come to our shul, observant, not observant, from whatever background, whether they're very, very Haredi, whether they're very, very modern, whether they went from one to the other, and whether they're in transition, or whether they are very Sephardic in background, whether they're very Ashkenazi, whether they are Israeli, whether they are French, Italian, we have United Nations there. It's every kind of Jew is present, and the most important thing to us is that they have a good experience. And it's not easy to do, but we try our best to pull it off, and then that has become the entire goal of what I try to do on the Internet as well. Um, it seems that there are a lot of people out there that have not had experiences where they have felt either heard or had somebody speaking about the ideas that they've thought about on their behalf. And the overall goal, and sometimes it may be obscured or hard to see it, but the overall goal 
is to provide a forum and a venue and an opportunity for people to have a place in the conversation to be part of this Jewish discussion. Right. So Facebook's a good example of that. Obviously, you get interaction with people. I assume people comment on your blogs as well. It does happen from time to time. Like on Uh, a regular basis. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's evolved because, you know, four or five years ago, very few from people were on Facebook. And I was on it from the days at USC. I was on it for 10, 11 years, and I didn't even have any from friends for like five or six years. There's like a few exceptions, but mostly everybody was the people that I met through work. And um, in the beginning, when I started this on the blog, there were more comments on the blog and very few comments on Facebook. And the conversation has actually moved. And instead of having longer conversations on a regular basis on the blog. There still are very often long conversations, but the bulk of the discussion ends up being on Facebook. And also because Facebook is a platform that moves quicker than blogs, the discussions are more often and they come about about different things as well, whereas on a blog, things kind of focus one thing per day, one thing for every two days or whatever. Do you get the feeling sometimes that the observant worldwide Jewish community is on Facebook too much? Or you would never say that? What do you mean by too much? Do you mean that there's more squeezing and more people, time? No, or? as more and more people join, it's it's somewhat of a phenomenon, right? I mean, most modern technological advances are not um, uh, embraced by the Orthodox community. I'm sure that you're meeting people on Facebook from an Orthodox community that likely don't have TVs in their home but are sitting on social media. Is that, I don't know, how do you view that? Is that good, bad, indifferent? Like, what's the... Uh, What's your evaluation of seeing the the social networking really go across, just like your shul going completely across the board? I view it as the biggest blessing of our generation. That's the, the easiest answer I can give you. Um, we have now have the opportunity. People on my Facebook page will be having discussions like, well, what kind of person is this? They'll ask themselves at a certain point, is this person a Haredi person? Is this person very modern? Is this person not even from? Is this person care? Is this person not care? Believer, non-believer? And the ideas that we are discussing end up having to have to stand on their own merits instead of because of a person's status in the community. Now, sometimes, of course, those things do tend to have some value, and people will sometimes make right choices about who they want to interact with because oh, they don't want to be exposed to things that they don't want to necessarily have right. to, to learn about. They don't have to. But if one wants the opportunity and one is excited or embraces that opportunity, I think it is the biggest bracha that our, our generation now has the opportunity to go across all spectrum of Judaism, Orthodox, and non, to bring about a kind of discussion and a relationship and, and a world and an environment that becomes so different than anything we've ever had before. And you come from a very prominent uh, Jewish family from many different sides, uh, and you're related to many distinguished rabbinic leaders. Would all of them agree with what you just said? I would, I'm certain that they wouldn't. And, no, they would not. And it, it's, there's a lot of factors in why a person would agree or disagree, but one of the factors is generational. Um, people from the generation which I'm part of, born after 1980, believe it or not, um, have a have a little bit of a different view generally about diversity and the value of hearing other other people's opinions than people from generations that are a little older than us. When I grew up, I almost never had to take something for granted. I could always look on the internet. I was ten years old, and the internet was easily accessible right. to find out answers to questions that I possibly had or to learn about things that I had. Um, interest in, whereas people in previous generations may have to, have to work a little bit harder. So our generation has a little bit of a different approach to data, information, and learning new things. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Eliyahu Fink is here. He's visiting us from the West Coast. Flew actually uh, through most of the night to be here in New Jersey with us this morning at JM in the AM. He'll be part of our stun show, uh, the Nahum Siegel Network, in the upcoming season. He has a very popular blog. You can check out finkorswim.com. Are you a swimmer, by the way, or is this just a play on words? 
Yeah, I'm not a swimmer. You're not a swimmer. When I was a kid, I was. So no swimming, no surfing, none of that California stuff. Well, there was actually this um, one of the funny things that happened to us over the last couple of years is that we were on a uh, television program, and part of the show was to, you know, give me the opportunity to connect with the, with the, with the world around me in Venice, which I was kind of reluctant to do in some ways because it's not my scene. I'm not a skateboarder, or surfer right. kind of guy. Um, and I don't love the beach, but they put me on a surfboard. I got on the board and I learned how to surf, and I've done it a few times since. It's an unbelievable experience, and I love it, but it's hard for me to remember that I love it because my brain just says, you don't like the beach, you don't like that. But I have done it, and it's actually a really, really great experience. Have you met any great Orthodox surfers? I have. Nachum Schifrin is a famous Orthodox surfer. Really and, good at it. And he's amazing, and he's been at uh, he's been at our show several times. And there's over, over the years, there's people that are – interested in coming to surf and have been to the shul, but there are people in my shul that are regular surfers. Every morning people go, shul, surf, or shul, or surf, shul, and that's just their daily routine. Unbelievable. Have you written about the current situation where the entire Jewish world is holding its collective breath as three teenagers are being held by the enemy? I've written, perhaps maybe some would say a little too much, but I have written about it. Um, you know, th- when things are on the consciousness of, of, of the from world, we... We have a tendency to discuss them, whether it's in person, whether it's on the Internet. And I feel very strongly that the Internet is just another way to have the same conversation that people are having at their Shabbos tables, for example. You know, people have – I once got a, a comment from somebody, and I I still laugh about it because he asked me a question using a Facebook message, mm-hmm. which is, for some people, private, different than – but and not just private, but it's different than an email or a phone call or right. a text. It's like something different. More like an email. Right, but this person thought it was different, and he sent this, this Facebook message, and I answered him within a few minutes, and right. he says, "Wow, how do you have time for all your all your regular correspondence and your Facebook messages?" <laughs> and I said to him, "No, no, Facebook messages are regular correspondence." <laughs> and my point is that you know the the way that we talk about things in real life is really how I view how we talk about things on the internet. It's a conversation, and it evolves, and it changes. We change our minds. We learn things all the time in conversations. And some people maybe view the internet more like a newspaper, which People like have editors, and they sit around right. thinking about everything, every single word, whether it should be here, whether it should be there, placement on the page. All those things matter in a newspaper, but in in a conversation, you just talk about whatever you're thinking about. Right. Um, was the West Coast as focused on this episode the way we were here? Because I would say in this area, it was really dominating everybody's thoughts and still continues to. Absolutely. I don't think you know probably an hour doesn't go by when you don't get an email from some organization or right. some shul or some person that's trying to do something. It's like people are struggling, grasping at straws to do things and we've had several very very big events, but there's also been smaller events that people have done privately and many people are taking a great interest in this and it's really I would say it's in 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 the worst possible way has galvanized and solidified and connected the community. We don't wish this on anybody, of course, but it does have that effect. Yeah, there's one fringe benefit, that's for sure. Um, and I remind everybody today, 12 noon, 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue. Today, 12 noon, 42nd Street, 2nd Avenue. Make it your business to be there. Lots of sponsoring organizations. We read through them earlier. It's a very impressive list. So did you have a unique take on all this in Think or Swim? Like, what's your perspective on everything? Or were you just commenting about how, in fact, we are united because of this horrific episode? Right. Well, there's a lot of angles. And, um, you know, sometimes what what I will do almost on purpose, and and I say almost, it's because it's more subconscious than conscious, but I'll try to find things that are maybe less discussed or defend positions that maybe are less defensible because people are seeing things in a specific way. And sometimes right. if you look at it from a different perspective or understand the broader picture, there's more to say about it. So I've written about it on my blog a couple of times. Um, probably the thing that most people know, know know about me right now with regard to this discussion is 
a Facebook post that I wrote, which regrettably was unclear, and people took it in a way that was very offensive to many people. And I, um, I'll say publicly on the radio. Yeah, I, please. I, I obviously regret the way it was perceived, but I did not mean it in the way that it came out. And it was, uh, it was, I did not think it was going to turn into what it turned into. Um, if you need to know what it is, you can go to my Facebook page. You'll figure it out after a little while if you go to one of the photos. There's one photo there with over a thousand comments. But that was not really what my take on the whole situation was. It was just one small part of it. The, the real take that I had on it, um, where it was in, was in, was in different areas. And, um, to kind of show what I really wanted to say about the entire incident, I did a post where I took pictures from across the spectrum of Judaism. Right. Um, and people were having these vigils and prayer services and asifas and gatherings for tefillah. And there were photos people had taken that they sent to me themselves or that they put on other blogs or other websites. And I tried to show how everybody is doing their tefillah or doing their gathering in their own way. They're all a little different. Um, but the fact that we're all doing it in that way, that tefillah or the the, the sense of, co- of connection with all those people is a super powerful thing. There was, um, I think, what sums up part of what you're saying is uh, when we observed certain people who haven't prayed in years, who insisted on praying because of this episode, and at the same time saw how the Lakewood Yeshiva interrupted their studies to simply stand up and say to Hillam for these three boys, when you think of all that and everything in between, it was just a really heartwarming experience worldwide. It really is, and it's, it's gratifying for me to see this in public because what we always hear about are the other stories. Right. The stories where they, you know, they're isolating from them and they're isolating from those right. people. And for me, it's kind of foreign because we don't have that in our shul at all, really. People from both spectrums, both sides of the spectrum, will gather together in Davin on a regular basis. And it's not like there's this, uh, there's stigma of, isolation from one group to the next so i like to see it in other places because i always get sad when i hear that it's not really that way sometimes in other places so for me that was part of like this um this seeing that this is possible we can do this and for me it shouldn't be just about when we have these types of things that happen i think that this should be the way that we handle things always that we should always have this way of being able to share common jewish experiences um even religious jewish experiences across the spectrum of judaism um, and that's also what, what kind of inspired the initiative where I try to bring an idea to all shuls, whether they're orthodox or not, um, and, and, to, and to kind of connect all of them um, in a way that would hopefully show people that we can do this together as well. Um, the orthodox community has a very specific view of how non-orthodox Jews go to shul. Right. And it's usually very negative. Right. Um, but in Los Angeles, there's a pretty strong non-orthodox Jewish community. And they go to shul, and they have uh, services, and they have a dedication and a passion towards being part of that world, even if they're not as orthodox and halakhically mm-hmm. observant. But shul is an important part of their lives. That's why I have a lot of people who aren't from who love coming to my shul. The shul is actually on the beach? It's literally on the beach. Literally on Venice Beach. So when I, you open the door. Right. So I have passed that shul. I have been there. That is a common that's thing. That where, that's where Rabbi Lappin was the rabbi, you're saying, for exactly. all those years? And you immediately succeeded him, or somebody else was in between? No, no, no. He left in the uh, in the, in the And early there were 90s. plenty of rabbis in between, or there were no rabbis in between? There have been about four rabbis between, and none have been there for as long as I've been there. Interesting. 
Wow, so when you say surf and shul, you mean it. They literally walk out of your door and go straight to the ocean. Right, so the door opens, there's a boardwalk, which right. is actually a misnomer because it's actually not made out of wood, whatever, it's a technical <laughs> term, but there's a road. What is it, aluminum? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a road, basically. It's a street, um, but it's a it's a walking street, right. and there's all these vendors that sell all kinds of interesting right. things, and then right, a- right after those people, which is the side of basically a small... You know, like a Muncie Muncie sized street. Right. <laughs> right on the other side of that is a little grass, and then there's a bike path, and then there's the, the sand. That's really how it's like far it's do close. you live from the shul? I live very close to the shul. I live about a 10 minute walk from the shul. In a neighborhood that would be called Venice. It's actually Santa Monica. The Santa shul Monica. is on the border of Venice and Santa Monica, pretty much. And uh, north is Santa Monica, south is Venice. And there's it's like a very interesting um, experience walking from one to the next because they are so different. And the way that they enforce their municipal codes changes ex- everything about how the, um, the the public sees the, the communities. In Venice, there's, it's like a 24-7, like 365-day Mardi Gras party. <laughs> and Santa Monica is like trying to be like this idyllic 1970s small quaint town which has like a bustling downtown but like there's nothing like it's all perfect the veneer is perfect on the outside and then venice is just this extreme opposite so if i did a show from your shul that would be an interesting experience i'd meet some interesting personalities you would you would beg me to do the show there every single week because you would never run out of material. You could actually just broadcast the play-by-play of what you're witnessing, and it would be compelling radio. Uh, you have a family, I assume. Yes, I'm do, out. Do they enjoy being 10 minutes from the Pacific Jewish Center? We are thrilled that we live there. It's not easy um, to kind of move outside the from community. We don't live in a from community right. per se. Like We live more in what people would say like a very spor- very sporadically, um, sparsely, sparsely, um, populated out-of-town community, right. um, but the benefits of living on that kind of place are, are pretty hard to match. So it took a little while for us. It wasn't. We actually commuted for a long time, uh-huh. but once we moved there, it was a little bit of a transition, and then once we kind of settled into there, we said, like, this is exactly who we really are, and this is what we want to be. Do your New York relatives visit you there? I've become a little popular. <laughs> Can only imagine. And they never leave, right? <laughs> right. No, we're very blessed that uh, our family has been able to visit us and, you know, from both sides of our family and cousins and whoever is able to ever come out there. And it's beautiful. We love bringing them to the shul also to show them what we're doing there and to show them what kind of experience they can have in a shul like that. Um, so... From the, from the perspective of kind of showing the world what we do, I love having that opportunity. But, of course, welcoming family and being part of the community that we, we, we come from and having that kind of um, as a satellite uh, once in a while is, is something that we really, we really cherish. We have like uh, yeshiva boys come for holidays and right. sometimes, you know, help out with the spirit of things. It's really, really, we love that to kind of bring those two worlds together. Not to necessarily compare what happened in uh, Northern California decades ago, but it sounds a little bit Karl Bachian, the Venice Beach Pacific Jewish Center. You know, it's funny. It's Karl Bachian in every way except for the Karl Bachness. Right. There's not a lot of, it's not, it's not a shul that it, you know, there's a shul in Los Angeles famously called a Happy Minion. Right. And they have a lot of singing and dancing. Correct. And if you like that kind of Karlbachian and feel, that's where you go. Right. One member of my shul says, we're the reasonably Happy Minion. <laughs> and You're and on it, the road to happiness. <laughs> it's moderately happy. Yeah. We, we have a good time, but it's also a much more familiar service. If you're from yeshiva background and you come to our shul, you won't feel like you've stepped into some twilight zone. We're like, there's something familiar about it, but it feels very different. It's right. a regular davening. And, you know, it's not... It's not different in that sense, but the people that are there certainly make a difference. What time do you start job this morning? We start at 9. Oh, right on time. You really are regular shul. <laughs> Rabbi Eliyahu Fink is here. Check out finkorswim.com. I could do this all morning with you, so at some point we have to end, but I can't end before asking you a couple of uh, things um, that I'm curious about from your perspective. 
Um, not that I'm suggesting one way or the other, because I don't. I I believe, especially because of one of the reasons, because of geography, I believe this is not my issue to comment on at the moment. Uh, but what is your opinion when you see? Um, young, noticeably Jewish people go on national television. You've written about this, about what happened on America's Got Talent. What was your take? Right. So there's two separate questions. There's the general right. question, and then there's actually... Specific episode. A specific right. episode. But actually, even in a specific episode, there's like the lechachila, and then there's like once it's happened, right. what do you talk about afterwards? Right. Um, look, in general, we Orthodox Jews have tended to try and avoid popular culture, generally, at least the American version of Orthodox Judaism. But there's also an old tradition that goes back farther that people in the Orthodox Jewish community were heavily involved in the, in the popular culture of their times. And it depends on the time and place and different kinds of communities. I don't think there's a truly Jewish answer to this. I think okay. that it's possible to justify any of those positions. Uh, when talking about within American Judaism today, I think it's inevitable. We have a community that is impossible to be completely insular, and there's going to be opportunities for people to have to achieve fame, fortune, success, using mediums other than what we're accustomed to in uh, in the from communities and yeshivas and schools that we want to kind of promote. So I think that dealing with things in the sense of like whether this is something that we should do or shouldn't do, it's almost like a, it's, like a, it's a wasteful exercise. The fact is that it's going to happen. It does happen. And we should try and figure out how to prepare for the facts that it's going to happen and try and ha- figure out how to deal with it once it does happen. Um, with, with regard to this particular incident, I don't think there's a person in the world that 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 thinks that this wasn't odd, or strange, or um, challenging to understand, um, from the, just the perspective of the context of what happened. You do or don't want to use the word embarrassing. Um, I th- well, it's it, you know, it's not. It's fine to use it because I think each person can subjectively feel right. embarrassed. It's some things can't be objectively embarrassing. I think there were people who were embarrassed by it. Um, so. It's something that is inevitable, and I think that there, when there are when there are instances when it does happen, there's potential for great opportunity for people to see things that are great. Some people see things that or maybe are not so great. So in the aftermath, you feel there's there's some positive that can come from it. Right. So I, I wrote about this, and I think this is important, that people will often say that things must be unambiguously bad. They must be wrong. They must be completely evil. And that's context in which we have to understand things. Things have to be stated as unequivocally one or the other. Most of us have grown up with that type of, uh, you know, with those types of instructions. Right. And I think that I I try to think that we should try and figure out a way. It's almost like a Hasidic thing in a certain way, which is ironic if you know me at all. But there's something about that, that there's always a spark of Kedusha. There's always something good that we can find in the things that happen. And it's important to me that we try and do that. And we train our minds to see how we can think about things in a way that maybe is not our initial gut reaction. And I think that there's value in that. It's not saying that we condone or that we express the glee or joy that this is how it went down. But the fact that it had happened, there could be something that's positive from it. Just because something has all these negative parts of it does not mean it's not not positive overall in the long run for something. Gotcha. Gotcha. And finally, you were part of what many called the historic meeting between uh, people who care, right, let's say rabbinic and Jewish leaders who care, and people from the who used to be part of the Orthodox community or grew up in the Orthodox community who would, would admittedly say they are not part of the Orthodox community at, at this moment. In fact, they're somewhat part of an organized community of people who were Orthodox at one time. You were part of this historic meeting. It was recently. It was in the last month or two, right? It was May 11th, so yes. May 11th, there you go. Uh, what was that like? What did you learn from getting together with people who have uh, who have drifted away from what some people would call our traditional Judaism? 
Right. This is a hard question to answer in a soundbite, but there's a lot. There's a lot to say about this. The, the thing that I took away from it that was, I think, most important was that there is a lot of willingness and there is a common ground within which we can have a discussion between the two groups. And that is, I think, the most important thing that, that we can possibly do. Um, like, like exactly what I had said previously about the previous question, that there's a tendency to kind of turn things into black and white. You know, from people have a tendency to wear things that are black and white. And uh, I think it's having an effect on our thinking a little bit that we try to kind of make people out to be villains and heroes. And um, we're uncomfortable with, with the complicated hero or the complicated villain. We want our, our rabbis to be perfect. And we want our villains to be perfectly evil. But the <laughs> it truth makes is, life easy, huh? <laughs> it, it does. Um, but not for me because I'm trying to change that. So it's hard uh, sometimes to kind of retrain our minds to think that there's flaws in what we consider to be the hero side and that there are things that we can learn from what we, people might consider to be the villain side. But when you sit in the room together and the conversation happens and people are talking, it becomes more obvious. And um, this can change everything because uh, we can learn a lot from each other. We can, we can try and change the way we divide our community between black and white, evil and good, hero and villain, um, and, and start to try and find that there is obviously a complex mixture of all of that in all of us. And then our firm community can be a firm community that is inclusive and that our Jewish community can have a more broader um, spectrum of who is considered part of the community with a stake in the community. And when we do that, I think that we benefit those who are in and we benefit those who are out. And we benefit those who are not exactly sure where they are, ambivalent, on the fence, um, when people don't have to make this like choice of like feeling that they have to be in one or the other. Right. There's a greater chance that they can have those experiences that are positive. Did any of the um, uh, people from the quote-unquote from side, I can't think of a better way to put it at the moment, uh, insist on anonymity? Or was everyone willing to publicly state that they were part of this get-together? In advance, there was um, there was there was a feeling among several people that they said, "Well, I want to see how this goes. I want people. I don't want people to know that I'm doing this until I've seen how it went, and we can kind of um, project what happened right. in a way that we're all comfortable with." So, in that sense, it started that way. But once the agreement was made after the event was over, people were very happy to have their names attached to it. Really, everybody. Everybody. That's a good sign. It was a very good sign, um, and certainly there was, you know. Uh, there was a little bit of an emotional feeling at that moment that kind of maybe pushed them per- further than maybe they had thought, or there was also this sense that, like, we can do this, and it can be working in a broader right. and greater and more popular sense, and maybe that does, obviously, any feelings that we have kind of dissipate sometimes. Satisfy my curiosity, and we're way over time, but I just got to get something on this out of you. Uh, I understand the, you know, the philosophical challenge, and I understand the desire to be in conversation with people who've gone through all this. I get all that, and I have the same curiosities, and would love to be part of a group like that. But but tell me something you learned that that just floored you. In other words, you're familiar, I'm sure. You've met plenty of people in life who come from from families and are now involved in stuff that the from community would uh, would certainly never condone, and if anything, they would condemn. But was there anything that just I don't know shocked you like crazy, <laughs> or you know that you that you can convey to us that that we wouldn't believe if we would be a little different, how different things would be for them? Give me something. Give me right. something that. Uh, well, it's. It's hard to shock me. Let's start with that. Right. <laughs> hey, you're on Venice Beach. Come on. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. Um, but the, the truth is the thing that I think was most profoundly surprising to many people was the amount of interest that the people who had left had in us. And so many of the people Interest that were, meaning curiosity or love? I'll, ex- I'll explain. When I invited people from the from side to come to this, 
they said, oh, I know why I would want to go, but why would they want to go? That was the question. And people were saying, what are they going to get out of this? What's the point for them? And this, I think, is the thing that is hardest for some people to believe, that although some of these people may write scathing blog blogs or, 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 or books, books or, or say things that offend us or hurt us, they still feel like our brothers and sisters. And when your brother and sister has a different life than you do, it doesn't change the fact that you're still brothers and sisters, and they want to be a part of what we do. They want to have a stake in what we say. They want to have a connection to what we do. They don't want to feel like just because they've made those choices, they have to leave completely. And now some people in the front community say, well, even if that's true, I don't care. They still they, they made their choice. Right. They have to leave. Right. But it's still a shocking thing to people to hear that those who have made these choices that through whatever circumstances led them away are still passionately interested. Which would indicate to me that many of them – understand just how precious life is in our community. In other words, they, they there's certain things that we that we do on a daily, weekly basis that they would that they'd like to be involved with. This is absolutely true, but it's and I, sh- I you know what I should be careful to say this. Not everybody, obviously. Right. This is there are there's no but you were shocked at the numbers, at the percentages, right? And there are a lot of people that say, you know, I don't want to be part of this because right. I have nothing to do with that anymore. But from the, there is a significant portion of that group that says that that's still who I am. I just don't practice. I don't do the stuff that they right. do, but that's still that's still who I identify as. Sort of like the shul I don't daven is an Orthodox shul. <laughs> it's a little different, but I can see this. But you, you know, that. you've heard that before, right? No, but yeah, you're right. There's an right. idea that it, it, it's not. See, this is a little different. The reason it's different is because that's kind of like it's almost like uh, that's that's what I don't do, and that's how I identify. Right. These people aren't necessarily identifying about what they don't do. Um, they actually identify as saying that I'm. From from community. Maybe I should have said it differently. My shul's an Orthodox synagogue. I don't, I don't go often enough. Maybe I should have put it yeah, that Yeah, and around. by the way, how rare is that today? That's right. not something that happens Correct. often. Correct. It's certainly not an American phenomenon, right. unless so, you look maybe to the Sephardic community or something. Right, like. right. and South African as well. Right. But it's hard for the Ashkenazi from mainstream right. community to kind of relate to this. And when we see this from the people who have left, it is interesting for us to know right. that this does exist. I wonder if it's because of that reason that the Ashkenazi community has probably been most affected by movements that have been, you know, non-orthodox that have come up over the decades, it's possible that, that may be one of the reasons. I, one of my theories about these types of things is that we actually chose the wrong version of Judaism to infuse and, and superimpose onto America. Right. We chose the Eastern European model where right. everyone was trying to kill us, and uh, we're here in America where we have kind of more freedom that's more similar to like maybe 15th century, I shouldn't say 15, but 13th century Spain. Right. Um, and we we didn't choose that model. Uh, the South African community in um, in, in and they were from Lithuanian community, did choose that. But they adjusted, right. And their community is actually, I think, what a model of what American Judaism could and hopefully should be. And that's what right. we try to do in my show. Rabbi Fink, you're a fascinating man, to say <laughs> the least. Unbelievable. Yes. Everybody can check out your work on finkorswim.com. They can visit you at the Pacific Jewish Center in California. You'll be back there uh, approximately when? How long is your visit to New York? I'll be the next Shabbos. Oh, really? You're already, you're already back. Where can they see you this Shabbos? So we're not revealing that. I'm actually going to be in Baltimore of all places. There you go. Family so if you're down in Baltimore this Shabbos, you have a chance to meet Rabbi Fink. Otherwise, head to California uh, after that, and he'll be back at the Pacific Jewish Center. And we thank you for accepting our offer to be part of our uh, uh, network team. We look forward to that. And... Uh, uh, hopefully we'll see you out there in California one day. It sounds like an intriguing group of people you get to uh, to meet every single morning. It is a very exciting uh, place to be on a regular basis, and uh, hopefully we're, we're looking forward to the uh, Nachum Siegel remote from Venice Beach. I appreciate that. It should be very interesting. Uh, Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, uh, check out finkorswim.com. Fascinating conversation on a Tuesday at JM in the AM.